Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. When her first book, The Animal Estate, appeared in 1987, evolutionary biologist and popular science writer Stephen Jay Gould lauded its brilliance, proclaiming it his favorite book of the year. In the decades that have followed, Harriet Ritvo's reputation has only grown. And today, she's widely recognized as one of the world's leading scholars in animal studies, a field she helped establish, and as a leading figure in the environmental humanities. Among her many honors, Harriet Ritvo has been awarded fellowships at the National Humanities Center twice, as she conducted her work on her outstanding books, The Platypus and the Mermaid, about the Victorian era's passion for classifying animals. Among her many honors, Harriet has been awarded fellowships at the National Humanities Center twice as she conducted work on her outstanding books, The Platypus and the Mermaid, about the Victorian era's passion for classifying animals, and The Dawn of Green, which examines the 1870s conflict over Thirlmere, one of the first environmental struggles of modern times. Currently, we're honored to have Professor Ritvo as one of the National Humanities Center's trustees, and it's a pleasure to have her visit with us today. Thank you, Harriet. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for asking me. So, why has there been such a flowering of environmental history over the past three decades, and how has the field changed over that time? There are probably a lot of reasons. But one of them, surely, is that the interests of historians tend to uh, reflect interest in the present. The environment has become, I mean, it's been a source of concern one way or another for a century and more, but it's become increasingly acute in the last half century and then in in recent decades. So um, as people's understanding of the extent of the potential impact of our current uh, activities. The field has shifted quite quite significantly uh, in maybe the last 30 years. When I first became aware of it, it was heavily focused on the United States and especially on the West on issues to do with the frontier, and so forth. And it has expanded geographically, chronologically. Um, It's become um, entangled with issues of colonialism, and uh, it's extended to places like urban urban settings. And of course, as, uh, as the contributions of science through things like ice cores and the the analysis of pollen records deep in the the bottom of lakes and things like that, it has has kind of merged backwards to take advantage of insights from paleontology and things like that. Mm -hmm. So Raymond Williams once said that nature is the most complex word in the English language. So what did he mean by that? Well, you could look in the OED, actually, as he did, um, and you see that it means it has it has meant many things, and of course, it has many different senses. So that when people 
say nature in the sense of, of what you can see in national parks, you can see how it's related to what they mean when they say human nature, but it's, it's quite different. So there's that kind of um, complexity. But there's also, and actually this is me and not him, the fact that what nature is is highly, highly contested. People tend to associate it with words like virgin, pristine, and that kind of that kind of language, even though the minute you start to think about it, you can see that there are very few places, really none, uh, to which those words in their literal sense legitimately apply. But nevertheless, they have a powerful um, a powerful persuasiveness. And if, for example, you're trying to drum up support for preservation of something, you do a better job if you call it pristine, whether it is or not. And so the people who are interested in this kind of thing have, a, have to have maintain a kind of double consciousness. Um, to do with what they say and what they mean or what they say and what they think sometimes. So let's, let's uh, interrogate the word wildness. As you know, Thoreau talked about in wildness is the preservation of the world. Uh, and that was, has often been misinterpreted as wilderness rather than wildness. So, so talk to us a little bit about the, the whole idea of possession, domestication, uh, in terms of how uh, we appropriate and deal with nature, and uh, particularly as focused in your work? My current work is to do with how people understand or have understood wildness in animals. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that there are animals that are wild, even if they live in, con in conditions that, um, are, that are heavily influenced by people. I mean, you would you know, the, the coyotes that live in my neighborhood are wild, even though uh, they interact with, uh, with our civilization in all, in all kinds of ways. But people have had actually a surprisingly hard time figuring out how wild is wild, whether wild is good or whether it's bad. I mean, there was a time when it was pretty much all bad, except if you wanted to use, say, a lion as your mascot. Um, but some, sometime in the 18th century, I would say, as people started to feel more in control of some aspects of their environment, and, and also as there was a dawning perception um, of the extent to which some aspects of that environment might be threatened, wildness began to be, um, have a kind of cachet mm -hmm. as well. I mean, you wouldn't have a Heathcliff as a hero probably in the early 18th century, um, but he seemed very appealing to many people in the middle of the 19th century, not to me, I must say. I mean, even the projection of uh, people thinking of their dogs as wolves or their cats as tigers, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, if you were really thinking about a tiger, it probably wouldn't be that cozy. But there are all kinds of ambiguous animals 
you know, for example, animals that become feral, like the wild horses in the American Southwest, Mustangs, or the camels that are running around in the middle of Australia, those are both domesticated species that were transported to those places for utilitarian purposes, and then one way or another became surplus to requirements and have thrived in um, situations where they're not taken care of by people and they don't serve any um, human function. And then there's a question of, do you try to eliminate them because they're an invasive species? Or do you try to protect them because they're large, sensitive, reasonably intelligent animals who have some kind of standing intrinsically as individuals. Mm -hmm. So your, your work, particularly the animal state, um, and, and, and your other work too, it, it explores the interplay of scientific and popular understanding of the natural world in, the 19, in 19th century Britain. So can you uh, unpack for the audience uh, an example of how animals have served as metaphors for human psychological needs, whether it's cattle breeding, dog shows, uh, big game hunting, wh whatever example you wish to choose. I mean, of course, there are loads of examples. In fact, almost everything is an example. But let's take the way that in the 19th century, uh, dog breeders... Uh, and to some extent breeders of other animals, but, but this was particularly noticeable with dog breeders, thought about their female dogs who would not um, uh, accede to the plans as far as uh, mating went that the breeders had, had made for them. And when you read what they say about them, they sound exactly like what a stern authoritarian paedophilias in a novel would have said to his recalcitrant daughter who refused to accept the suitable uh, husband that had been chosen for her and instead uh, wished to uh, consort with some um, uh, raffish, unsuitable uh, man. The language is exactly the same, of course, well, and people couldn't control completely what their uh, female dogs did any more than they could control 100% what their female offspring did. Um, and it's interesting mm -hmm. to see them um, conflated in that way. Another kind of milder uh, example of the same kind of thing is if you, if you read Trollope and you notice the way he describes his young female heroines, and you compare that with the way that um, cows and mares are described in the um, breeding literature, you find that there's an odd resonance to do with what physical attributes are appreciated. Mm -hmm. Let's go from gender to class. Um, so I, I was really intrigued in noble cows and, and hybrid zero, uh, zebras. Uh, uh, your discussion of the beginnings of the animal protection movement uh, in the Victoria era. And you talk about one of the things that um, underscored 
animal protection was a fear of social disorder from the lower classes. So tell us a bit about that. The animals that were protected first were animals used in commerce, you know, not, not animals, well, animals that were, uh, that were driven to market through urban streets that might be driven too harshly when their feet would be bleeding and they would be beaten, or the horses that provided most urban draft uh, at, that, at that time. And so the people who were mistreating them were the working class men who were, who were in charge, in charge of the, uh, those kind of animals. They were also conceived to be the people who stole and tortured domestic pets, which was also an issue. And if you look at the, the development of humane legislation, you find that in the earliest um, act, it was focused on livestock, ex with the exception of bull, bull baiting, which was a pastime that was shared, um, at least in, in the country, by uh, all classes. And then subsequently, um, uh, pets and also bulls were um, included in the legislation and in a way, it's not really, I don't think, because people cared more about cattle or horses being beaten than dogs or cats, but that the legislation gradually moved closer and closer inside the home um, so that it was easier to regulate what happened on the streets than what happened inside to, to domestic pets that were in a sense, part of the family. And then later, cruelty to children, mm -hmm. um, which in fact was the, um, the cruelty to children society was an offshoot of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And then last of all, um, women. Your work also talks about taxonomy, ta uh, taxonomic urges, and the disruption of that uh, um, urge for uh, taxonomy or, or classification, uh, particularly talking about beasts and beasts as a category which is neither homogenous nor stable, um, and we get into hybrid uh, hybrid categories and monstrosities and the fear of monstrosities. Can you uh, elaborate on on your focus there? Well, the, the, there are a lot of different yeah. different things um, jumbled up there. I mean, monstrosities that are in the nature of chimeras, um, combinations of two very disparate kind of animals, provoke, a, I think, a different kind of disturbance than hybrids that are the offspring of mm -hmm. two different species or, I mean, what a species is, is of course, it's, it's imprecise anyway, and it was understood in many different ways in the 19th century. Some, sometimes people thought breeds were species and, um, and so forth. But the kind of monstrosity that is against nature, to use nature in yet another, mm -hmm. in yet another sense, provoked a kind of horror, but also a thrill. So those 
kinds of whether they were real, such as, you know, bearded bearded women and and things like that. So that really happens, and or whether they were factitious, like the mermaids that were made out of a monkey and a salmon uh, stitched together. They were exhibited in sideshows, essentially, mm -hmm. as freaks, mm -hmm. um, where they were, uh, where they were uh, at very attractive. They um, not only did the general populace come to see them, even when they were exhibited in the back rooms of taverns and things like that, but also a distinguished naturalist would come to examine them, sometimes getting privileged access. But the um, kind of more natural hybrid, it evoked a kind of all kinds of reactions. On the one hand, people were fascinated by them, and you often see the attempt to produce such that basically to persuade animals to mate with what wouldn't be their ordinary partners as something that even zookeepers did to test what their their mm -hmm. power over the animals, the extent to which they could manipulate nature. Um, but also, breeders um, would introduce um, hybrid uh, uh, matings if they wanted to correct or enhance some aspect of their breed from by contribution from another breed that might have it more. Of course, then they usually try to deny it. But so there was a positive, but there was also, it also um, connects with fears of miscegenation mm -hmm. on the human level. And again, there's a load of resonances between what people said about human mixing and what they say about especially domesticated animal. Mm -hmm. But there's also a fascination with the transgressive, as you said, with, and that's part of the appeal of sideshows. So I want to kind of take you a little bit out of your historical area, or actually a lot out of your historical area, and get you to speculate a bit about the fascination for the term that's arisen in the 21st century, but are also earlier science fiction, the post-human. Uh, that is the merger of, of, of man and machine, or, or human and machine. Um, so is there an analog there? Does it fit? I would say that it's more metaphor than analog. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, I mean, you know, computers and AI and all of that are very compelling, but I think they're compelling in a different way than a cat or a chimpanzee or, you know, a panda mm -hmm. or even a snake. Uh, is, I mean, there's a kind of reductiveness, and part of it is not just not just to do with the machine, but to do with um, the term animal, which is too broad a term mm -hmm. to be useful in a context like that, because there are so many different kinds, and they're so different from each other. I mean, I often think that the kind of discussion that talks about the animal is really just a way of talking about people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I would like to conclude by asking you to uh, 
um, give us a little humanities moment. And that is, I'd like you to talk about an experience in your life that drove you to an interest in the work that you have now. It's hard for me to to pinpoint a moment. I think the interest, the source of my interest in the um, the history of animals and of environment was a kind of gradual coming together of interests that I had had for a very long time. Um, my academic training, as you know, was not in history, mm-hmm. although it was historical, but so partly I had a, a great interest in language. I'd always been interested in biology. Uh, I have an uncle, had an uncle who was a veterinarian, and I have been the uh, manager of cats um, for a long time. So somehow, when I decided that I was going to be a historian, somehow all these things came together, mm-hmm. and um, it turned out to be a very fortunate decision for me. And they've come come together beautifully, and you have um, expanded and changed the discipline, and thank you for that work. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This has been Robert Newman with Harriet Ritvo from MIT. Um, Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.